Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So, gender, what are we even talking about here? Uh, I've been dipping into this book recently. It's called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Perez. Uh, Perez says that this is a man's world because those who built it didn't take gender difference into account. And this book is littered with example after example of forgetting somehow that women are real and women are different, distinct to men. Most officers we learn, you may know this actually, most officers are five degrees too cold for women because the formula to determine their temperature in the air, con- air conditioning was developed in the 1960s based on the uh, metabolic resting rate of a 40-year-old 70-kilogram man in a suit, and women's me- metabolisms are slower. Women in Britain are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed following a heart attack. Heart failure trials in the 1960s generally used male participants, and the typical symptoms for women of a heart attack have largely been classified as atypical. Cars are designed around the body of a stereotypical man. So although men are more likely to crash, women involved in collisions are nearly 50% more likely to be seriously hurt. Gender blindness in tech culture produces what Perez calls the one-size-fits-man approach. The average smartphone is too big for most women's pockets, too big for their hands, and women don't usually even have pockets, so what's the go there? Uh, The voice recognition technology, it's designed to pick up a male voice about 70% of the time. And it's really bad for recognizing the female voice. There's a story of a woman that says that the voice recognition in her car when she's driving along doesn't pick up her voice, but will recognize the voice of her husband sitting in the rear passenger seat. And the point of this book is to show that there are biological and social distinctions between men and women. Distinctions which, when they're overlooked, can be disastrous for women, like not realizing that the symptoms for a heart attack for women are different to men. Although it's possible, isn't it, to make too much of gender differences. There's a whole range of literature that talks about the differences between men and women Books with titles like Brain Sex and The Essential Difference, giving us ideas about the male brain and the female brain, and somehow finding evidence for things like the um, empathic advantage of women and the heightened spatial advantage of men. Most of these differences are not neurological, it turns out. They're socially and and cultural conditions of men and women. But there's even a Christian subgenre of these kinds of books. Uh, If you are around around the um, turn of the millennium, you may have come across John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, a book that claims that men are made by God to rescue beautiful women, to long for the mountains, and basically to go wrestling with bears. There's a companion book, 
captivating, which claims that every woman longs to be swept up into a romance, to be the beauty of the story. And these kinds of books, they thrive on a tenuous use of scripture, deploying stereotypes of both women and men in churches. And these stereotypes can very quickly go negative, can't they? Maybe you've experienced some of these, that women talk too much, that they're too opinionated, that they're too emotional, that a woman's value is found only in the sexual fulfillment of a man, or that men can't help themselves. Men are visual, and so women have to be responsible for the sexual urges of men, that men aren't allowed to cry or be vulnerable or delight in flowers. And these stereotypes, they're noxious. They're dangerous to our spiritual health. They end up bemeaning and belittling others. And are a far cry from the mutual respect and the equality of men and women that the Lord requires from us. So what do we do with this? There are distinctions, and neglecting those distinctions can cause harm. And yet making too much of these distinctions is also damaging. What are we to do with this? The Bible gives us an understanding of men and women that both affirms the difference between men and women as important, while also giving us reasons to be suspicious of claims to know exactly what this difference means. And more than helping us understand the issues of gender, the message of God's grace to us and Jesus empowers us to live as men and as women in the midst of all our questions and problems with gender. But it does this not by focusing on the differences between men and women, but the shared acceptance we have in Christ as God's children. And this becomes clear as you trace the story of gender across the Bible. What the Bible has to say about gender can be helpfully organized under three headings, creation, corruption, and redemption. So let's start where the Bible does with creation. The opening chapters of the Bible offer a profound account of the nature of humanity as male and female. In Genesis 1 verse 27 we read, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Humans exist in this irreducible duality of male and female. And it's a beautiful way of holding together the way in which humanity is both one and two. There's no sense in Genesis of this being a bad thing or a difficulty. It is the form in which humanity will represent or image the one true living God in the world. And what immediately follows from this is a shared human task. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Note there that the task is given to them, not him. There's no sense that this is the man's task that woman is simply an addition to. 
And the task is further developed in our first reading from Genesis 2. The task is described in terms of working and taking care of the garden. And Eve is described as Adam's helper in this task. We might feel a little uncomfortable about this description. Although the text here is not trying to express inequality. The phrase used, a helper as his partner, is an expression of equality without identity. By which I mean Eve is Adam's equal, but not his clone. They share the same origin and the same substance, but she's undeniably distinct from him. Eve is a helper in the sense that she will share his task together with him. Now there's an element of order here. Adam is created first, and the fact that Adam names Eve probably implies in Genesis's mind an idea of priority. But priority doesn't mean superiority. And Genesis as a whole is focused on the mutuality and equality of men and women in the most wonderful way. We see that in the man's exclamation when he encounters the woman for the first time. It's beautiful. She's just right, bone of my bone, a partner without being the same. Adam awakes from a deep sleep, sees Eve, and immediately recognises, presumably by seeing her body, both their profound unity and their undeniable difference. God creates humanity with an irreducible duality, established in their sexed bodies as male and female. There are, of course, cases where this difference is obscured in some way or another. People can be born with abnormal or undeveloped genitalia, for example, and these situations create very painful and difficult experiences for people, experiences that we need to hear and people that we need to love and not send away. But as Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf notes, these situations are arguably the exceptions that prove the rule. Men and women's gender identities are rooted in the specificity of their distinct sexed bodies. And so whatever maleness and femaleness might mean, whatever cultural or social expressions it might take, it is inscribed in human bodies. Gender is expressed culturally, but it's tied to our bodies, to our biology. Which stands in contrast to contemporary gender theory, which understands gender to be merely culturally constructed. And if gender is merely cultural, then there's a sense in which all gender is just an illusion. It's not real. It's something to be made up and performed. As British philosopher Cordelia Fine says, pick a gender difference, any difference, now watch very closely, as poof, it's gone. But what this does is create a false dichotomy between nature and culture. This is, kind of, seems a little obtuse, but this is a finely grained detail of the Christian doctrine of creation here. Humankind, male and female, has a task a purpose to pursue from the very beginning. 
And as one commentator notes, when God commands Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, he's mandating that they go and make culture. We are culture animals. Our culture making is one of the ways that we fulfill Genesis 2.15, cultivating and caring for creation. Which in the context of Genesis 2, Adam goes on immediately to do by naming the animals a task which involves using language and ideas. You see, culture is part of creation. It's one of the ways that we reflect God's image in the world as his sub-creators. And so to give an example of this, not that it works in Genesis 1 and 2 because they didn't wear clothes, but to give an example of this, should men wear pants to church? I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. The Greek men who read the New Testament, they hated trousers. They hated pants. The Roman Empire went so far as to ban wearing pants. If you were spotted in Rome wearing pants, you get straight into exile. Pants were a sign of being a barbarian. No civilized Roman or Greek man would dare wear pants. It would be scandalous to see men in church wearing trousers instead of a tunic or a robe. It's not something we tend to think about today. Although, if we were Fijian or in Fiji, we might expect to see men wearing a sulu, a kind of kilt-like garment, which was introduced into Fiji in the 1800s from Tongan missionaries. Should men wear pants in church? How you answer that question will reflect your cultural context. And we cannot simply write off cultural ideas of gender because they're socially constructed. That's part of our creation mandate, our creation task. Although, and you can already imagine, I guess, we do need to be a little wary here, don't we? Because what we regard as cultural or even natural have both been corrupted by sin. But here's the point. Socially and culturally constructed answers to the question of the significance of gender difference are not simply unnatural. In fact, they are the only way in which the social significance of sexual difference, which is really what we mean by gender, culture is the only way gender difference can be expressed and experienced. So that's creation. And in the narrative of Genesis, the joy of creation is followed very quickly by the tragedy of humanity's rejection of God. And we see the consequences of this action first in God's pronouncement and then in the unfolding narrative of Genesis. So let's look firstly on the word God speaks to the woman in Genesis 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's much we could say here. At the very least... These words imply that sin's corruption of creation will be particularly apparent in gender relations. The words desire and rule imply a struggle, a relationship distorted by urges and dominance. And God singles out the relation between the man and the woman as a point where a distortion has been introduced, where things are not right anymore where desire has become warped and power will mean pain. In the narrative that follows in chapter 4, 
our attention is drawn to the way in which gender difference immediately becomes corrupted. We're introduced to a man named Lamech, and we're told that he had two wives. The narrative is subtle, but it makes the point very clearly that this is the corruption of Genesis 3. And Lamech, we learn, is a brutal man. In verse 23 of chapter 4, he speaks to his wives like this. Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Why is Lamech boasting like this? Uh, Andrew Arrington, who's a minister at Newtown, Anglican, in an essay on male violence in the Bible, asked some helpful questions of this passage. Why is it to his wives that Lamech says this? Why do they need to hear this? They're being kept in the fear by fret of violence. They're being intimidated. The mutuality of male and female has been corrupted. We see in Genesis 4 already that woman has become used as a commodity, something to be intimidated by men. And we need to not lose sight of this point, do we? We live in a world that's characterized by an ugly sexism that squashes and threatens women, whether through the proliferation of pornography and sexual harassment, the normalization of practices like going to strip clubs, or simply through the continuing prevalence of violence against women. It's still the case in Australia that on average, at least once per week, a woman is killed by a current or former partner. And instead of pretending that this doesn't happen, the Bible gives us tools to understand this for what it is. A perversion, a wicked consequence of humanity's rejection of God. What we had read in Genesis 1 and 2, the beautiful reciprocity, neutrality and relationality of men and women has become badly warped, almost beyond recognition, into a relationship that's characterized by dominance and fear and pain. The Bible testifies that sin is a pervasive distortion that affects every human culture. And that should lead us to hesitate before being too confident about what is a helpful expression of the male-female difference. Thankfully, though, we're not left with despair. In the story of the Bible, the tragedy of the four is overcome by what God does in and through Jesus. What then does Jesus do to the question of the significance of male-female difference? What we see in the New Testament is that the significance of male-female distinction is radically relativized by Jesus. We see this first taking shape, I think, in the life of Jesus himself. While the Gospels simply don't tell us enough to draw adequate conclusions for our questions, when you read through any of the Gospels, the way that Jesus relates to women stands out. That's remarkable. Jesus saw women as persons, equally the subject of God's kingdom and grace as men. 
An English writer, Dorothy Sayers, put it this way. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arc jokes about them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. And this plays itself out in the inclusion of women in the early church. We read in the New Testament that women not only served as deacons and prophets, teachers and patrons in the early church, the apostles subverted the cultural expectation that women and men needed to marry to be secure in life. Singleness, says Paul, is better. Paul even provides or exhorts churches to provide for widowed mothers and grandmothers so that they will not be left destitute in an age where there was no government care. But it's the radical statements in Galatians 3 which I want to draw us to. Paul writes, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. Did you see it there? The difference between men and women is radically relativized. Something profound has happened in Jesus. In a patriarchal world which excluded women, Paul says that women and men together are heirs, God's children in Christ. Notice the way that Paul's argument works. The basis of this equality is not in anything about the people involved. They don't do anything to earn this equality. Rather, it is in the fact that they are all equally in Christ. They are all brought together as one in him. And it's not that ethnicity or gender is erased, but they're relativized. They're not the most important priority anymore. The basis of equality is the equal stake they have in Christ and the equal blessings that flow from being united in him. We often assume today that equality must mean sameness. But in the New Testament, the equality of men and women is not a function of their identical qualities. Galatians 3 is not trying to homogenize men and women together. 
but of what we hold in common, our common participation in Christ. What's important is not that men and women are the same, it's that they are together, together in Christ. Creation, corruption, redemption. Which leaves us wondering, what do we do with those tricky passages? You know the ones, those tricky passages that speak of the obligation of wives to respect their husbands and husbands to honour their wives, or those ones that reserve certain responsibilities in the Christian community for men and others for women. What we find in the New Testament is the affirmation of the original goodness of male-female creation, that there is no humanity without men and women. And with very little fleshing out of what that is meant to look like. Our task, it turns out, is not to try to recreate first century culture as we try to flesh it out, because the New Testament gives us very little clues to go off. Our task instead is to engage in what the English pastor John Stott called double listening. Double listening, hearing from the culture in our own time and context, and then going back to scripture, hearing from God's word, and letting that affirm and challenge and even subvert what we hear from our culture. And I think we see Paul do that in some of those passages. He says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wife. And as far as we can tell, no one in the Greco-Roman world had ever told men to do that before. Men might like their wife back then. There were certain advantages from being married to the right kind of woman. But there was never an expectation that men would actually love their wives. There was a cultural assumption instead that women exist as a commodity for men, which Paul undermines in his instructions about marriage. For husbands and wives, the New Testament's concern is that they live such a life that it reflects the goodness of created order. These passages don't paint a rigid prescription of how husbands and wives are to live together. There's no sense, for example, that men have to be the breadwinners or that childcare is the sole responsibility of women. Instead, these passages call husbands and wives to reflect the Bible's vision of mutual dependency in their difference, equality before the Lord, and union. And how that is expressed is negotiated in that tricky interplay of double listening to our culture and God's word. When it comes to those passages that talk about women ministering in church, there are generally two options, I think, about how to read the New Testament. Either women teaching in church was a regular feature in the life of the New Testament church, with a few rare exceptions, or women teaching in church happened rarely, with a few rare exceptions. That's kind of the hermeneutic choice you have to make. And this is an area where evangelicals genuinely disagree when they come to read scripture. But wherever you land, these are the exceptions which you need to account for. Now, sadly, time really prevents us from unpacking that much further, except to say this. 
The New Testament generally depicts church as a reflection of the family, which means on the one hand that we don't check our gender at the door when we arrive at church. To do so would be to distract from the mutuality of gender. But on the other hand, as a church, we have a commitment to fully integrating women and their gifts into the experience of the worshipping community. According to Colossians 3.16, we're mutually responsible as men and women to teach one another. In our gospel communities, here in our church gatherings, it's not the task of just one or two people. It's our shared task as God's children, as we read his word together, to teach one another. That's your job, to encourage and teach each other. And that's important on this topic because we need to hear each other's voices. Hearing each other will wipe out some of those dumb stereotypes that it's easy to fall trapped to. We need to teach and admonish and encourage each other because it's as we all speak up our voices that the church grows. And so as we come to an end... The story of the Bible upholds the twofold nature of humanity, male and female. And in a world which often assumes that the male perspective is the default, that women are really just little men, the Bible challenges that assumption. There is a goodness in femaleness. And our communities, our churches are poorer if we only see the world through male eyes. In Jesus, we see a clear confirmation that what God declared in the beginning to be good really is good, and it deserves to be upheld and respected. And yet that's not the full picture. For those who belong to Jesus, being male or female is no longer the most important thing about us. We are first and foremost no longer men and women, but children of God in Christ, heirs together. Though you might ask, heirs of what? Paul says in Romans 8:17 that to be a child and heir of God is to be a co-heir with Christ. We share in his inheritance. In fact, this is why Jesus took on flesh and suffered on the cross for our sins. He left his father's side so that we might become heirs of his father. He gave up everything to share his birthright with us, to welcome us into his family. And there's a particular resonance here, isn't there? Because heirs is something that women have often tended not to be. But heirs of the kingdom they are, joint heirs with Christ, heirs together with men, we are co-heirs of grace in Jesus Christ. And I think that's why for 20 centuries, 20 centuries globally, Christianity has been majority female. The main complaint from different attackers of the church in the second century, in the 19th century, has often been there are too many women in church. May that always be the case. Our churches need to be spaces where 
women and men together experience that gracious welcome of God who loves us and knows us. Now, working this out in our life together can be hard work. Not because being male or female is hard in and of itself, but because of sin and the task of double listening to the culture of the day and God's unchanging work, um, to God's unchanging world. And so we need to keep working together in our shared life as men and women, which is why we need to hear from each other and be ready to listen to each other, to grieve together when we get it wrong and slide back into harmful stereotypes, or to lament together and protest together when our society falls back into patterns of sexism, misogyny, and violence against each other, to rejoice together in those moments where we get to use our gifts in serving each other for the glory of God. Jesus said that it's the truth that sets us free, and as we keep unlearning untruths around gender, our freedom as women and men who follow Jesus is found in this truth, that we are God's children, heirs together of the gift of grace. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, you know us and you love us. Our hearts are truly thankful that your Son took on flesh, that we might become your children, your heirs, joint heirs with Jesus and heirs together of grace with one another. So we pray, continue to renew us by your Spirit, that as we find grace, learn hope, and be light here in the inner west, we would grow in patience and gentleness and grace as sisters and brothers, that we might continue to learn from each other, love each other, and serve each other as your children to the praise of your glory. And this we ask for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen.